Support for this show comes from Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Whether you're seeking a location for your podcast, teaching language courses, or selling handcrafted ceramics, Squarespace makes it easy to create a polished, professional place that connects people with whatever it is you're excited about. Visit squarespace.com Vox for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code Vox to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Powerful white men can use self-righteous anger on their own behalf to get the result they want. For women, the understanding is that if you use anger on your own behalf, it will hurt your ability to make the case for yourself. Hello, welcome to Zuclan Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Rebecca Traster. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on intro here because this is a great conversation. I just want to get to it. Rebecca is one of my favorite writers. Her new book, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger, is unbelievably timed. And it is essential to understanding this moment, both broadly, the, the, the broader Me Too moment, the upheaval we're going through, and narrowly, the Brett Kavanaugh, Christine Blasey Ford hearings. And that's where we begin. So let's get to it. Rebecca Traster, welcome back to the podcast. I'm very happy to be back. I honestly have been sitting here all morning thinking, where do we begin? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, how, how, how do we begin the conversation? I'd been, to prepare for the interview, I almost had finished the book by the time the hearing started. And I don't think I would have understood them correctly if I hadn't read the book. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That, that means a lot to me. You know, one of the reasons that I wrote this book, this is the only book I've ever written like this. I wanted it to be a tool. I've never felt that way about certainly any book I've ever written. And really, I've never thought that way. I I, I guess it may sound grandiose or something. I don't know how it sounds, but I, I really felt it about this book. And it's one of the reasons I rushed it. I both wanted to capture the anger in its sharpness, but I also felt like there's so much anger and there's so little framework offered to women about how to feel about their own anger and how to understand what those feelings are. And I only gained a lot of my understanding by doing the research and sort of sitting down and focusing my brain on it. And I wanted to offer people a tool to help them contextualize what they were feeling, what they were thinking, to give it some historical perspective about how these kinds of furies and emotions have played out in the past, the kinds of restrictions on how women and men can effectively express themselves. And so it's incredibly gratifying to me to hear that that sounds like how the book functioned for you was kind of as a tool in hearing what happened during those hearings. Well, it had this quality of, I think that if I had watched him without having read the book, I would have seen what was at the hearings, but I would not have seen what wasn't there. Mm. And, And the book operates in this way of sort of making clear there is this range of emotional expression that's locked off. And if you're not seeing it, there's a reason you're not seeing it. It's not mm-hmm. just like this is the way things are. Right. It is like there's a reason it is right. the way things are. And that was incredibly helpful. Oh, well, I'm glad. Thank you so much. Thank you. When you watched the Kavanaugh and Ford hearings, give me your analysis of how anger played into them. Well, I think that anger played into those hearings and the response to them from so many different directions that I'm still days later trying to pick apart the strands. I will tell you that amongst peers, friends, people I was hearing from on social media, and this is before we get to the expressions of anger in the hearings, 
there was such heat and such wrath at everything leading up to them that by the time Christine Blasey Ford sat in that room and opened her mouth and began to talk, I felt like a blazing fury all around me that we were going to do this spectacle. There was so much recall to the anger over how Anita Hill had been treated. There was so much, there was so much anger already in place before the hearings even started. And I'm, I'm sure it's fair to say there was anger on both sides of it, too. Anger at women and many men about the way that Dr. Blasey Ford had been treated, the fact that her request for an investigation had not been honored, that this had been rushed, that Republicans had tried to push this through, the way that the senators had been denigrating her, publicly suggesting that this was a con job, a smear job, that she was a little mixed up. I mean, really taking us back to the way that they treated Anita Hill as a little bit nutty and a little bit slutty. They couldn't quite do the slutty thing with this one, but there was almost a low-key implication of it anyway, like she just doesn't know the guy who she's accusing. There was so much anger about that. Then the hearings start. And of course, Dr. Blasey Ford, who at that point we hadn't heard from, we hadn't heard her voice, tells this story. And the way she comports herself in that hearing room, it conformed to everything people want to see in a female witness or storyteller. She was calm-voiced, She was rational to the point of citing her scientific background to back up her points about how trauma has affected the brain. She was solicitous, polite, deferential. I mean, I couldn't believe it when she was asking Chuck Grassley, like, is it okay if I do that, you know, about taking a break and asking for caffeine, making jokes, in the midst of telling a story that is traumatic, describing the trauma that she's experienced, not only in the moment of the alleged assault, but the trauma that it caused her afterwards, the trauma of then having been brought into a national spotlight against her will, the way that she's been dealt with and that her family has been dealt with since, having to move out of her home, all of these aspects of a story that would make any reasonable person angry, distraught, furious at the various levels of injustice and ill-treatment, but there was not a touch of anger in her delivery. And of course, that was instinctively, I think we all know that that's right. She couldn't have been angry. There's no way that she could have sat in that chair and told her story with wrath and not done herself harm right? It would have been alienating. She would have been heard as irrational, vengeful, hysterical. I mean, those are actual words, by the way, that had already been used by members of that Judiciary Committee describing the protesters who had been protesting Kavanaugh's nomination two weeks before, before there were even sexual assault allegations. The women who had been expressing anger in the hearings, anger protesting what they correctly imagine is Brett Kavanaugh's stand on abortion and the likelihood that he will be a party to overturning Roe v. Wade if a case comes up, protesting about health care and the possibility of the Supreme Court overturning health care. And Ben Sass had actually given a speech where he referred to those years of women shouting angrily about abortion and how women are going to die as hysteria. He'd used that word. Orrin Hatch had called protesters loudmouths, right? So we knew that there was no 
room for a woman to sit in front of those senators, that Judiciary Committee, and express anything like wrath because they had already set it up in the hearings over this man that any woman who was who was angry, no matter how correct, rational, and righteous her anger might be, that that kind of voice would get written off as loudmouth hysteria. And so she didn't. She was calm and polite and deferential in a way that was so compelling. But also, to some degree, for me, it was a little hard to watch because I could just see the constraints that were on the way she was able to express herself and what, how she was not able to express herself. So then Brett Kavanaugh comes in, and of course, it is just open, spitting, snarling, sneering rage. It was like, it was so expressive. It was really, I mean, I I don't know that he was actually spitting. Maybe it was just that he was drinking the water. Maybe I'm even influenced by the Saturday Night Live parody of it where there's water pouring down his chin. But I just, the tears and the, he was just effusive. Like there was like liquid coming out of his, his face. He got to use all the rage of the wronged person, the person who has been unjustly accused. And he deployed it right from the start. He was aggressive, belligerent. I was shocked at the way he talked to the members of the judiciary, the way he talked back to Amy Klobuchar that he could just turn a question on her. It was such it was such a like alpha male approach to rhetorical power. Like you don't have a right to question me. Did you drink till you blacked out? It was so inappropriate. As was Lindsey Graham's slightly unhinged, I mean, to use a word that's often applied to women's anger, (laughs) unhinged expression of fury on how this man had been wronged and the Democrats used to be his friends, but now he hopes they never get this seat. It was also unapologetically partisan, so unapologetically angry. And it was clear that the theater of it, the rhetorical intention was to use anger as a tool to suggest how this man had been wronged. And in the immediate that night, it was extremely clear to me, and I think to a lot of other people, even those people, including me, who thought that this was bananas inappropriate behavior. I think going to bed on the night of the hearings, there were these sort of twin realizations that we could not have summoned a more perfect witness, and that's a complicated, that's a complicated phrase that we can return to if we want to, but that we could not have summoned a more perfect and credible witness who could have told in some ways a more damaging story about this man. And at the same time, he saved himself by using righteous, blustering fury on his own behalf. And that that use of anger on his part was clearly going to be enough to secure his place on the Supreme Court. That's what I felt going to bed on Thursday night. One of the things that I thought was so remarkable about that hearing was watching the Republican men on the Judiciary Committee, their level of emotional engagement Mm -hmm. with Brett Kavanaugh's pain and their level of emotional disengagement entirely from Dr. Ford. To me, what was one of the telling things about it is that I think that there was something honest about it that we've seen again and again in in Me Too. It's in Kate Mann's idea of empathy that 
they could see themselves in his pain. They could see it happening to them. Lindsey Graham then come out and saying, I know I'm a single white male, not allowed to have opinion, but I'm going to speak up anyway. Mm -hmm. Like it's time for white men from the South to finally have a voice in this country. (laughs) And I thought that was a remarkable part of the whole thing. They wouldn't even speak to her. Even Mm -hmm. after she asked them to, they wouldn't speak to her. And yet they were apologizing to him. Mm-hmm. Like there was a real emotional link between them and him. So this is something that I write about in my book. And I, in the book, I'm talking specifically about how we are able almost reflexively to acknowledge, respect, and hear the rage of white men in this country as politically consequential, often as righteous and correct, and as somehow diagnostic. Like, if a white man is angry, we need to figure out what he's angry about, because it's going to teach us something about where there's injustice or where we have to address this. That's a great line. So, um, well, it's true. Think about it. And that's, you know, I I write— That's why it's great. It is really true. It's really true. (laughs) I write about it with regard to the founders, right? And we we comprehend—not only do we comprehend, we we revere their anger, right, as the thing—as our defining national narrative. They were— livid at the injustice of being governed, taxed, and policed without representation by the British government. And their rage was the thing that birthed this nation. And we revere it to the point often of fetishization, right? The founders. Now, then they codified, when they built their new country, they codified many of of precisely the same and even more severe inequalities in the building blocks of the nation. And yet the rage of those who were subjugated or oppressed by the founding documents of the new nation, who were enslaved, who were disenfranchised, who were not enfranchised, ever who were denied any kind of equal legal or economic, um, social or sexual power, the rage of those people is not taken seriously and in fact is often written off as hysteria and disruptive and problematic. But the white men's rage remains our our sort of national lullaby. (laughs) But we can feel that More recently, when we look to the way that all kinds of political analysis in the wake of the 2016 election, and I'm not saying that this is an incorrect impulse, right? Looked at the anger that was channeled by Donald Trump on the right and to a lesser extent by Bernie Sanders on the left, the rage of a white Rust Belt working class, men and women, but I think um, imaginatively sort of defined as the the white working class man and his anger. And we look to that as diagnostic, right? What did Hillary Clinton do wrong? She didn't take seriously enough the anger of the white Rust Belt workers or the white working class in this country. We hear this all the time, every day. Now, I'm not saying that that is incorrect. We should take seriously the anger of a white working class because it points us to all kinds of problems that our government needs to address from unemployment to opioid addiction to the lack of accessible and affordable health care, right? It's right. Anger is diagnostic. It's just that we do not similarly treat the anger of people who are not white and not male with the same kind of seriousness. We don't treat it as a guide to problems we need to address. In fact, when you look at a movement like Black Lives Matter, which of course should be seen as diagnostic, the anger behind Black Lives Matter is at the often systemic brutality, violence, and killing of African Americans by members of police departments. And it is pointing us directly to a dire situation that needs to be addressed. And yet a political media will often write off Black Lives Matter as a disruptive social movement, as, you know, in in various points, as the violent actors themselves. If there have been protests, Meghan McCain called them a hate group. 
We don't say that somebody lost because they didn't take Black Lives Matter seriously enough. In fact, when Black Lives Matter protesters interrupted the campaigns of Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, I think supporters of both of them were irritated that it had disrupted, you know, these campaign events. So there is a reflexive way in which we treat the anger of white men as anger we need to take seriously. And my complaint is not that we do that. I believe that that is a correct reaction to political and social anger. It's just that we need to apply it to all kinds of people and not just to white men. And so when Brett Kavanaugh and Lindsey Graham are telling us in furious terms about what they are angry about when it comes to how they have been mistreated, they are tapping into a very long national history in which we are trained, like beyond anything we're conscious of, to understand their complaints as valid. That's the starting point. And they have the ability, it's not simply that they're allowed to be angry on their own behalf, and women are not, though that is true, that Christine Blasey Ford didn't sort of have that rhetorical option when she began to speak, that she wasn't sort of permitted socially to be angry about what happened to her. It's more than that. It's that as powerful white men, they know that they can use self-righteous anger on their own behalf to get the result they want because there is a history of that anger being treated seriously and understood as fundamentally righteous and correct. And for women, the understanding is that if you use anger on your own behalf, it will undercut your point. It will hurt your ability to make the case for yourself because you will be heard as fundamentally irrational. The idea that you're emotional, that thing that you are describing in the Judiciary Committee, Lindsey Graham, Brett Kavanaugh, the emotion that those Republican white men who had the most power in that situation, the emotions that they were able to call on to make their case more compelling to the rest of the Senate and to the American people, those emotions would be disqualifying for Christine Blasey Ford because what it would convey is that she was telling a story out of emotion and it was fundamentally irrational. Right. You know who I was thinking about during that was Hillary Clinton during the Benghazi hearings. Mm-hmm. So the structure of the the justification for how Kavanaugh acted that day was that this was a guy who was being falsely accused. His name smeared through the mud nationwide, something attached to him that at the very least he believed or, or, or says he believes he never did. And that, God, can you imagine a, a, a more horrible fate? He's acting exactly as a person should act under those circumstances, that, that his emotion, his fury in this was a kind of legitimizing force, right? Mm-hmm. It showed that he was innocent because, I mean, that's how an innocent person would act. And I thought about the, those hearings um, mm-hmm. that Clinton had to sit through on Benghazi, where there had been, at that point, a year more mm-hmm. of a nationwide campaign to make people believe that she had let her own employees die. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a worse thing than anything being alleged here, mm-hmm. right? It was a it was a crime beyond measure, and I mean, people were saying like, "Lock her up," and I mean, it was. Un- they were. They, they're still saying that as well. They're still saying <laughs> they're it. Still yes. Saying um, that. But but I mean, you were hearing then like talk of treason, right? Like crazy oh, yeah. things, and this yeah. was being done by Fox News. I mean, it was not a, a small. No, thing. No, it was part of the presidential campaign. It was in advance of a presidential campaign that they knew that she was going to run. It was used as a weapon against her. Yes. And if she had walked into that hearing before the committee that was investigating her in this completely insane way and raged at them the way Kavanaugh raged at the judiciary, at the Democrats on judiciary, 
I mean, she wouldn't have been allowed to do that. Right. And in fact, if you remember from the earlier hearing, I can't remember what month this would have been, but from the earlier hearing, do you remember there is a moment where she bangs her hands on the table and says, what does it matter? There was one moment, not in the hearings where she sat for 12 hours straight or whatever and Mm -hmm. just sort of carefully responded reasonably rationally and with tremendous knowledge to every single question and didn't break a sweat. And that was that was actually during the presidential campaign. And I remember at the time thinking that her performance in that meeting, precisely because she didn't rise to the bait of becoming angry at this incredible sham and because she didn't lose her temper and because she was just cool, collected, and presented herself calmly and capably throughout, that it actually was going to work on her behalf um, in some way. And I think to some extent it did in in terms of popular opinion. There was a sense that she really handled those hearings beautifully. I think that was particularly felt on the left amongst those who had anxieties about Hillary Clinton. There was a kind of rugged admiration for how she did in those hearings. But there had been, I think, what one of the things you're pointing to is that to some degree they were probably trying to get her to lose her temper. There had been the earlier hearings far closer to Benghazi, where she there's one instance in which she gets angry and she bangs her hands on the table and she says, what does it matter? And she sort of goes through her argument about everything that had been done improperly. Um, those people are dead. And it, she was making a cogent argument, but the right and Fox clipped just her banging her hands on the table and saying, I think I'm getting that phrase right, what does it even matter? And used it as basically an ad against her, this angry, irrational, they clipped it completely out of context to make it sound like, what does it matter that people died, right? Which is, of course, not what Hillary Clinton was saying. So to some degree, those hearings themselves were probably a setup to try to get her to lose her temper. That, By the way, that loss of temper was about four milliseconds in another set. She'd been through a number of hearings on this subject. and, And they truly zeroed in on the sort of one instance in which she became frustrated um, and raised her voice and used it against her. And that's a perfect illustration of exactly what we're saying. I mean, the hope is to get a woman to lose her temper so that she disqualifies herself. And that's something that Hillary Clinton described when talking about the 2016 debate with Donald Trump, where he was looming over her shoulder and sort of pawing the ground behind her. And she described that both in an interview with me and then wrote about it in her own memoir. She described doing the math in her head about can I turn around and confront this guy? And imagine, and this is one of the things that I write about in the book a lot, the kind of, and I don't know how aware of this men are. That's a question that's raised by many of the women that I interviewed in the book who describe their own internal calculations about how or if or whether or under what circumstances they're going to express the anger they feel. Hillary Clinton writes about how she thought about turning around on Donald Trump and saying, get away from me in this very angry way. And that while this debate is going on, right, a presidential debate, she is doing the thinking about like, that is only going to hurt me. If I do that, it's going to redound negatively to me. I'm going to be seen as the aggressor. And so she doesn't do it. Now, afterward, there was all kinds of commentary from people. I mean, I was on Bill Maher, and he said to me, like, why didn't she just turn around and kick him in the balls or something? And it was like, and I said to him at the time, like, how do you think that would have gone over? You know, it's not possible. There are other people in my book, Barbara Lee, who describes the kind of calibration and titration around whether or not 
to express the anger that she has every valid reason to feel after a repeal of the AUMF that she had been working toward for 16 years was finally passed with bipartisan support. And then Paul Ryan strips it from an appropriations bill in the middle of the night, and she goes to argue her case. And especially as an African-American woman, she described to me in this incredibly vivid and painful detail the amount of work she put into being careful not to express her rage because she knew that if she let anybody know on the committee how angry she was, it would invalidate her position. And that is something, I mean, the punishing nature of this, that we feel anger, women feel anger for all kinds of completely valid, reasonable reasons. And yet we know that to express it will hurt us. And that's the thing when I think about Kavanaugh and the idea that he had that tool available to him. I mean, from my perspective, obviously, it's also his reason for being angry is to some degree fundamentally illegitimate from my perspective, right? I understand the argument if you think you're falsely accused, then you may well be angry. This is a man who has been credibly accused. His anger about what's been done to him in part is that his ascension to the Supreme Court of the United States is being paused, questioned. There's a desire to investigate past behavior. These are reasonable requests. I understand that if somebody truly believes they're being falsely accused, that, of course, it would produce anger. But the accusations that have been made so far have all come with requests for further investigation. The fury expressed by Brett Kavanaugh about how this has ruined his life, you know, in many ways, <laughs> uh, is illegitimate. And yet he knew that he could deploy rage in a way that would benefit him. Support for this show comes from Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Whether you're seeking a location for your podcast, teaching language courses, or selling handcrafted ceramics, Squarespace has all the tools you need to create a home on the web. You can create a polished, professional place that connects people with whatever it is you're excited about. Squarespace also supports all forms of connecting with those people, whether you're selling products online or in person or offering memberships. You can make your website look exactly how you want it. They even have the tools to help you create a custom logo. And they make it easy to create a place for people to schedule an appointment with you, browse your services, or learn more about why you do what you do. Visit squarespace.com slash Vox for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code Vox to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Michael Cohen, Trump's former attorney, fixer, and friend, testified this week in Manhattan. Todd Blanche is upset because he knows that he looks like a fool right now representing Donald Trump. It is the stupidest opening to a cross-examination I have ever heard, and I have heard a lot of stupid stuff. I'm Preet Bharara, and this week, Katie Fang, host of MSNBC's The Katie Fang Show, joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, to talk about the latest court news from Trump's trial. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. There's something you said a couple of minutes ago about whether or not we treat the anger of non-white men, in this case, seriously. And you were saying that we don't. And it was something I was thinking about reading your book, 
We definitely act like we don't. But there's also a way in which I think we understand that the reasonable amount of anger for African-Americans in this country or women in this country would be so high that it's socially destabilizing. Right. One of my theses in this book is that the sort of suppression of, discouragement of, marginalization of anger coming from non-white, non-men in the United States, it's not just accidental. It's tactical. Because we understand from our very founding that rage at injustice can in fact produce a revolution, can be politically destabilizing, because that is written into our DNA, and because the structure of the country fundamentally is one of minority rule in which white men, white initially landowning men, built a country around themselves and their own power, all of its institutions, its courts, its government, its businesses, its economy, were all built around the continued dominance of white men over women, over people of color. There is the understanding that an uprising of that subjugated majority, especially because it is a majority, could itself be revolutionary. And at various times has been, right? That we have had social and political movements. We had a civil war in this country. We have had social movements that have altered our laws, the way representation works. There have been moments, truly revolutionary moments in this country that have often been powered by the anger of that subjugated majority. And so there's an understanding that that anger has political consequence, and that's part of why it's discouraged. One of the things I argue in the book is that anger is a communicative tool, right? If women are discouraged from expressing their anger for the reasons that we've talked about, we're we're told from birth that it makes us sound crazy. People will take us less seriously if we speak from anger. It will undercut our point. We'll seem hysterical. We'll seem over-emotional. We'll be kind of ugly, unattractive. Nobody will want to be with us. It's unpleasant. It's corrosive. We're sent all these messages which seem kind of aesthetic, right, or strategic. But in fact, if that works to quiet us, if it works to quiet women, then it has a political impact because when women do get angry, they become audible to each other. And when they become audible to each other, that becomes a tool of connection. You can find agreement. And when you find agreement, you can theoretically work toward coalition. And if you have coalition, you can organize. And so a lot of The history of women organizing, whether around abolition or in the labor movement, that comes itself from instances in which they are put together in the same space. When women are kept in homes, right, when women are mostly in domestic roles um, and don't have a lot of space to communicate with each other, you have one set of conditions. Then, because of industrialization and more women moving into schools, factories, mills, and coming together through religious revivals, you have women speaking to each other, potentially sharing the things that they're frustrated about. And then you have the birth of some of these very disruptive political and social movements. And you can see that in a very contemporary way. The the view I got of it was when I traveled in the summer of 2017 to the Atlanta suburbs where there were suburban white women who had been previously not 
engaged politically, who in the wake of the 2016 election had begun to organize around, in that case, the John Ossoff campaign, although there had been other campaigns already that they'd organized around. A few of them had been running for office themselves. They were working on the Ossoff campaign. And they, many of them, described to me such similar stories. They'd been living in these neighborhoods that were red and that they assumed to just be conservative. They had left or liberal politics. They were Democrats, but they never opened their mouths about it because they understood it would be sort of socially disruptive, uncouth. They wouldn't put a sign out because it would cause trouble. And so they just kept quiet about their politics. Like so many other people, they assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election because, you know, she had all the power and she was inevitable. And Donald Trump's bad behavior and sexism and racism would be disqualifying and she was going to win. And when she didn't win, they kind of exploded in shock and anger. And many of them described it as a coming out process, the first time that they'd ever really made noise about their politics. Well, when they made noise, they heard a woman down the street who was also making noise. And they realized that they had a neighbor who they'd perhaps lived next to for decades, thinking that they were isolated in their political ideas. And yet, when they finally exploded with frustration and anger in the wake of Donald Trump's victory, those neighbors became audible to each other and they literally joined organizing groups together. They joined Indivisible. They they made a group called the Liberal Moms of Roswell and Cobb Counties. They started canvassing, registering voters, fundraising, learning about their local elections and candidates in ways they never had. They became civic participants in ways they hadn't had in the past. They went from political apathy to active political organizers coming up with new ideas for how to target younger voters in the community who weren't voting yet. They began to make active political change. I actually just spoke to a colleague who got back this weekend who was down reporting on those same women in the lead up to Stacey Abrams, the election in November for governor in which Stacey Abrams is running and would become the first African-American woman ever to be a governor in the United States. And a colleague of mine who was just down talking to those same groups of women told me just yesterday they're completely just as energized as they were in the summer of 2017. And many of them described this as a kind of new life and new kinds of connections they'd found together. That was because they'd been angry in a way that allowed them to hear each other and then begin planning together. There's this line from Liliana Mason, who's this great political scientist, uh, that, that she's written about that— Anger is an emotion that makes people participate, and then anxiety is an emotion that makes them pull back. Mm. And I have this theory that when people hold anger back, it becomes a kind of anxiety. Absolutely. It, if, if you're afraid of releasing what you feel, then one thing you become afraid of is being put in a position to release what you feel, and you pull back, right? It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a vulnerability. And that if people are allowed to express anger, they push forward. And I do think there's something in the way we have such a norm of having people control emotion and we pretend that what that creates is a a kind of like an even-tempered public square. But for a lot of people, it's just anxiety. It's just a a fear of of being caught out with the wrong emotions and it's a a demobilizing equilibrium. I think that many of us – can relate to that. I mean, I I write about this a little bit in the book about how I'd sort of absorbed the notion that to be angry, even in my embrace of it, my sort of intellectual and political embrace of anger as as valid and politically important, I also had sort of internalized the notion that to feel anger itself was to be unhealthy, right? And I sort of try to unpack that a little bit in the book, but I was thinking about it the other day. Because the anger that so many people have been feeling in the lead up to the Kavanaugh 
hearings and to Blasey Ford's testimony, I think was feeling so bad, like not being able to sleep, not being able, you know, just that kind of thing that you associate with it being anger, like corrosive, internal, like I'm miserable, I'm clouded, I'm so angry, I can't think straight, that kind of thing. But a lot of that, I think, was about the impotence that many of us felt in the wake of this. There was so much to be angry about, but the powerful forces were suppressing all of the outlets for it, right? The protesters were being thrown out. The testimony and the stories of these women was just being paved over, right? We're going to have this vote. We're going we're gonna to have the hearing, but we're going to do it under these terrible circumstances. We're going to hire a woman to come in so we don't have to speak to the woman directly. I mean, it, there was just all this setup that was, it was infuriating. Um, and that felt bad. And like, we couldn't get out how angry we were. And then there was this instance where the two women, where two women confronted Jeff Flake in an elevator. And the video of that, I mean, this is anecdotal, but, you know, based on the people that I've seen writing about it, talking about it, and certainly the people I know who watched it, it was so cathartic to see those women just yell at him. And speak to him with a kind of anger that, for example, Christine Blasey Ford could have never called on in that hearing room. And to point their fingers in his face and and to say, look at me, meet my eye when I'm talking to you and tell their stories. There was something so powerful and electric about that moment. And in part, I think it was the release of anger, all this stuff that we were angry about, about the injustices and unfairness of how this hearing was set up, the fact that the investigation wasn't allowed to go through. I mean, it's, look, that anger's back. The investigation, it seems likely, is not going to be a thorough investigation. It's kind of a half-assed sham. The fact that the Republicans were being allowed to do these ridiculous things, like hire a woman who they were going to refer to as a female assistant, but there was like nothing, it was, there was nothing any of us could do about that. And then there were two women who got close enough to a senator to be able to yell at him and and point fingers in his face and tell them his stories and tell him how angry they were. And it was like, it was a tremendous point of release and a feeling of moving forward. And then the fact, I don't know how related it was, but the fact that then Flake made what is perhaps a hollow gesture, but nonetheless a gesture of delay by saying we have to have this investigation, it felt like that anger had produced something. But I think that matched how I certainly felt when I watched those women yell at him in the elevator. Like, yes, that exactly what you're saying. Here's some movement because we can get it out. There's been no place that this anger can go because the Republicans on the committee have this level of control. They can control the circumstances. They have control over the Democrats to some extent. They have control over how the story is going to be told and what parts of it are going to be repressed and what's not going to be taken seriously and how they frame it. And we can be angry as angry as we want, but we don't have any power to get it out. And then those women got it out and it felt important. It felt catalytic to something. And I think it's what you're saying. It was a moment of moving it forward, of being able to say it out loud. And so, you know, I do think that that's important. <laughs> <laughs> what What are the things you do in the book? Um, and I think it's related to this. We've been talking a little bit on and off here about social movements. And one of the things that I'm always struck by is how much in the narratives we tell, we drain past social movements of their anger. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you constantly see this like cuddly Martin Luther King Jr. figure 
erected to show how today's people are just too angry. But you write about some of the past feminists who were dismissed for their anger, right, who who, who showed it too much and so got like put on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a bit about Andrea Dorkin mm-hmm. because she's a figure in the book who I think even you seem to have complicated feelings about but really, yeah. really wish she were here. And I think she's somebody who – exists for a lot of people who have heard of her less as a thinker and more as a kind of figure, right? Like, mm-hmm. a, like a, oh, like a symbol, that's too far. Uh, could you talk a little bit about just Andrea Dworkin, like who she is and how she fits into this? Yeah, Andrea Dworkin was a radical feminist writer and thinker. Her A lot of her work actually came just after the second wave. And I think in retrospect that that's probably contributes to the degree to which she was. If you don't know what second wave feminism is, just the the real quick. Right. So the women's movement that's often referred to as the second wave is one that sort of um, took hold as a mass movement in the 60s and really hit its height in the 1970s. And that's the movement that you probably associate with coming out of the feminine mystique, Betty Friedan's book, that, you know, altered all kinds of laws around employment discrimination, sexual freedoms, the access to birth control and reproductive rights. It's what we think of as 1970s feminism. And it sort of hits its symbolic end in about 1982 with the defeat of the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. And that defeat was actually led by another angry woman, Phyllis Schlafly, uh, a woman whose anger was deployed on behalf of a conservative white patriarchy and channeled a lot of the anger at having had some of those patriarchal power structures disrupted by the feminist movement of the 1970s. And Phyllis Schlafly led a very long crusade to stop the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment and succeeded in 1982. And in the early 80s, there was also the election of Ronald Reagan also spoke to a tremendous period of intense anti-feminist backlash. The the alterations that the feminist movement of the 1970s had made to the social, legal, political, familial landscape in the United States because there was such an expansion of educational, professional, and economic possibility for women— and a questioning of domestic roles and the power structures within families and between men and women romantically and sexually. There was a spike in divorces. There were a lot of changes in the way that men and women were expected to treat each other and behave around each other. And that was very intimately disruptive and caused an enormous amount of, I think, anguish and anger. And so when the backlash to that movement came— It was extremely powerful. And one of the things that it worked to do was to paint those second-wave feminists as man-hating, sexless, physically unattractive harpies who had come to destroy men and women's relationships with each other, who had come to destroy hetero expectations and intimate relationships. And Andrea Dworkin continued to write through the 80s. And she was a fiercely angry feminist. She was unapologetic specifically in her critique of hetero relationships and heterosexual relationships. And in this period of intense anti-feminist backlash that sought to paint feminists 
as anti-man and anti-sex. Dworkin's thinking, which, by the way, in many regards was incredibly sharp and acute and I believe, in retrospect, correct about many of the inequities that she was identifying between men and women in their romantic and sexual relationships. The kinds of questions we're now re-entertaining around Me Too, around sexual assault, violence, and harassment. Andrea Dworkin was writing about these things. But she was made for, for articulating these very difficult and very uncomfortable, angry truths about sexual power dynamics between men and women, especially, you know, coming out of the 1970s and into the 80s, she was made into a kind of monstrous emblem of the caricature, the, an anti-feminist caricature of what feminism stood for. Now, she also, when I talk about how I have gone back recently to Dworkin and found in her writing about heterosexual power imbalances so much that resonates now, I also want to add that I think that she was, she had positions that I do not embrace. Um, she and Catherine McKinnon, who of course was and is an incredibly powerful lawyer, actually on behalf of a lot of the sexual harassment suits. Catherine McKinnon did a lot of the legal work and legal writing and thinking on why sexual harassment is a form of discrimination. Together, Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon staged a fight against the pornography industry, trying to pass measures that would ban pornography. You know, this is a stance that I don't agree with, and it was used as a sort of cudgel against them, casting them as fundamentally anti-sex. She also had stances on sex work <laughs> that I don't agree with and I think she was wrong about. But her work, if you go back now, and, and I found this very powerfully when I was writing my book and I returned to some of Dworkin's writing. Um, probably her most famous book is Intercourse. And her critique of the power imbalances that define our expectations about what relationships between men and women are supposed to be sexually and romantically is so powerful to read now because it's this kind of work that had her written off in her time as wacko, marginal, angry. There were critics, feminist critics, who said that her work turned off a generation of younger feminists who didn't want to be like Andrea Dworkin. And in fact, when I first started writing as a feminist, and let me tell you, we are not talking about radical arguments here. It was like I was writing super anodyne pop feminism. And immediately the thing that started cropping up in the comment section, and this is, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, was that I was a dorkinist. And I, let me just tell you, <laughs> what I was writing, you know, had nothing to do with Andrea Dworkin. She was used as a weapon against feminism in a way that I found tragically sad when I returned to her work over the past year and realized that it presaged, it was so in some ways predictive of this conversation that we have been having over the past couple of years that we can acknowledge, I think now, has been long overdue and she was trying to have it in the moment that she was totally written off by popular and political conversation. She, by the way, I should also add, one of the things I write about in the book briefly and that we have talked a lot about in the past couple of years is the way that feminists treated Bill Clinton when, when, with regard to the allegations that had been made against him by other women and that after 
it was revealed that he'd had this relationship with Monica Lewinsky while he was the president. And we have talked a lot over the past couple of years. I think you and I have talked about the ways that feminists defended him. At the time, Andrea Dworkin did not defend Bill Clinton, right? There was a kind of consistency with her. And again, to note that her work is incredibly resonant now doesn't mean that all of it is resonant now, as with so many um, writers and thinkers from other eras. I think, you know, we're always going to find points where it's like, no, 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 I think that's totally off. But it is really, I think it's really worth going back and revisiting Dworkin's writing. Yeah, I mean, people don't need to be all right to be important. Nobody is all right ever. <laughs> and one of the reasons I bring up, I'm glad you brought up the Bill Clinton thing. You have this great line in the book where, where you talk about one of the real complexities and in some ways points of vulnerability for this movement and for feminism always has been confronting the fact, uh, you write, that the bad guys are in many cases also our good guys. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things that had always seemed to me to be true about Dworkin and the way she's been received is that what was so key about her, she could be, she could be or was painted as someone who was against the people you loved, mm-hmm. right? Like she was the enemy of your friends or the enemy of your husband. And one of the, the the pieces of all this that has seemed to me to come up again and again and again and again is the difficulty of maintaining an anger at social injustices that then begins to implicate people who you care about. Uh, and, and this is something we talked about the last time you were on the show. And, you know, the, the Kavanaugh thing seemed to me to be also showing what that's going to look like as it takes shape, as it becomes a playbook, right? That it, it's going to be people coming forward and saying, yeah, look, maybe this is all an important movement. Maybe all these points are well taken. But look at this person, me, my suffering. Like, look at this man's suffering, right? You know, right before the Kavanaugh thing, you had the New York Review of Books, um, you know, piece. You, you had the Harper's piece. You, you can feel like the camera, like being sort of like pulled back to male suffering here and to try to pull back in this kind of empathy. Like, do you want to be in this movement that is attacking these people you love and you care about that's causing them all this pain? Right. Well, that goes back to the idea that white men are our normative citizen and the ones whose humanity we fully recognize and can feel sympathy for. And that goes back to the politics. I I think we talked about this around Me Too, that power among the many things that having had this tight grip on power has offered to powerful white men in America is a kind of recognition that it matters that many of the men who lost their jobs during, or many of the most visible men who lost their jobs during Me Too, were men who were in our homes every day or every week. They were the voices in our radio, the TV hosts, the interviewers, the ones who explained the news to us. And Wait, therefore, let's not, let's not be too hard on explain the news. <laughs> <laughs> right. Also, they, many of them explain the news very badly, I just want to <laughs> say. Um, but when white men have – when I say that they have a grip on power, it also means that they have a grip on our perception of what humanity is. When there are centers – and this is, again – I mean, Kate Mann is really the person – read her book, Down Girl, in which she gets into empathy and the way that misogyny works. She's a philosopher and she's just so smart about all this. But it's our normative citizen, our normative human is a – in the United States is a white man. And we can identify with, sympathize with, empathize with them as fully human. And we are trained to feel for them. And so, and that gets to why we also permit them to rage and cry, you know, and that that can be compelling to us because we recognize them as fully human, complicated. Really quickly, what does fully human mean here? Because this term comes up and I think people 
people would say, no, no, I recognize that everyone is fully human. So what does fully human mean in this? Well, to recognize in the, them in their full humanity that has that is multifaceted and that may comprise contradiction and may comprise anger and sorrow and the full experience of human emotion. We don't we don't regard Every, we may recognize them in everybody intellectually as human, right? Mm -hmm. But there are all kinds of ways in which we have not recognized people who are not white men as fully human, beginning with our founding documents in kind of legal ways, right? That that enslaved African-Americans were literally not recognized as fully human. That in, in terms of our marriage laws, and I know I'm going antiquated here, but I think it gets us to where we are today, right? In terms of marriage laws, the way that the practice, something called coverture um, that was borrowed from England, kind of marital law, when a woman married a man, she lost her legal identity. She lost some aspect of her her humanity. And there are, of course, dregs of that. Women often still give up their names when they get married. And without wading into that debate, like we have to consider like what it means that there's some aspect of a woman's life that we don't even question that she gives up when she joins herself to a man. In other times, that also entailed, in, in earlier eras, that entailed giving up any kind of rights she had to the money that she earned. That became her husband's money. She didn't have a legal identity. She, for a long time, women couldn't testify against their husbands in court because they were considered part of him. Their identity coverture was the name of the marital set of marital laws in which a man's identity literally covered a woman's identity. She wasn't considered a separate legal entity. So those are the roots of this. And that's the kind of legal perceptions and everything that take us to where we are now, where the white man, his story, his we hear this in the critiques of literature, that it's white men's internal narratives, their approaches to family and to politics. And this is whether you're talking about Norman Mailer or Philip Roth or Woody Allen or Knausgaard, um, <laughs> that our, our imaginative curiosity about the human condition, what we can acknowledge as a great American novel, or they have historically almost always been about white men. And that the stories about the internal lives of other kinds of people are kind of niche, right? We might appreciate them. We might give them literary awards, but we don't accept them as the fundamental American narrative, right? I mean, I think it goes back to what I was talking about before in terms of taking the concerns of white working class voters as somehow more deeply informative about the American condition and what we need to address than, than we take the, the complaints of other kinds of Americans who get written off as sort of marginal groups. So that's part of what I mean, that because white men have had their stories, their voices, their perspectives, they've gotten so much air in this country throughout its history. Of course, it's automatic that we feel for them, recognize them as full, complicated human beings who might well be angry and sad and, and that we can recognize those things. And other kinds of people have not been permitted or encouraged to have the same range of expression. It's loud, deafening, cacophonous. It's a nightmare. Oppressive. And just what is it that many people think is pretty nightmarish and yet are still willing to shell out quite a bit of money for a night out at a restaurant? Sound is the number one complaint that diners have about their experience. So why are restaurants so loud, and when did that start happening? Is there anything anyone can do to fix it? We've got the answers on the latest episode of Gastropod. All that, plus the science behind the perfect playlist to accompany your meal. 
This special episode is part of our new collaboration with the podcast Switched on Pop. Find Gastropod and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I think we're having like half of the real conversation around the Kavanaugh issue and half a fake one. Because he came out immediately and said, I never did any of this, I categorically deny it, I categorically deny that I ever could have forgotten it, we're having a conversation about what happened and the truth of what happened. And and that's good. We should have that conversation. But I think lurking behind this, and you could really see it in Lindsey Graham's testimony, but it's there in polling too. A majority of Republicans say that even if everything that Dr. Ford, Dr. Blasey Ford says is true, that Brett Kavanaugh should still be seated on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And I I do think a big part of this that we're not really joining as a conversation is if it's true, if he did everything that's being alleged or something very much like what what is being alleged when he was 17, is it fair to bring this up and be angry about it today? I kind of think we need to talk about that because I think that the fact that most Republicans think it isn't explains why there's not really an interest on the Republican side in investigating it too deeply because the whole thing is kabuki if you don't care if it really happened. Right. Well, the whole thing is kabuki for a number of reasons. Sure. But but yes. <laughs> um, and that – I think this takes us right back to this question of full humanity and who whose humanity doesn't track or matter enough, right? So that we can instinctively acknowledge that if a man is falsely accused of something, that that's worth being angry about. And it makes sense, right? And I did hear that even from people who who thought that Brett Kavanaugh was being ridiculous. Well, okay, well, I understand if you're being falsely accused. But the idea that that a woman's complaint about having been pinned down and had a hand over her mouth and having had a bathing suit ripped off of her and having had to think about how to escape out of a front door, there is this attitude around Kavanaugh's defenders that that doesn't matter. And you heard it in some of the focus groups, right? You heard there was this this group of Republican women. It turned out that they were actually like Republican operatives who did an interview, I think, with CNN in which they were like, he was young. Who hasn't? You know, that's the attitude. But that stems from this attitude that, in fact, the sort of casual abuse of women's bodies is so normalized Right. This takes us back to the stuff that I was describing before as antiquated about how, you know, in the relations between women and men, women lose certain rights like control over their own bodies. And by the way, marital rape in this country was legal through the 70s. (laughs) So and one of the conversations that has come out of this about how normalized it was to treat women this way, that it was just something that a drunken teenage boy might do. And one of the painful revelations of this moment is how many women are coming out and telling their own stories about how this happened to them and that they they had never talked about it because it was just something that happened. I said to a friend a week ago, and then then the, there's this story about 16 Candles, but I actually said that to a, a friend a week ago. You know, look, I grew up watching 16 Candles in which it was, and that was the sweet John Hughes movie, in which it was just a normal point of teenage life that the drunk girl was going to be traded between two boys and that that was kind of it was kind of an adorable outcome that the geek had gotten to have sex with the pretty drunk girl while she was unconscious and doesn't really remember it I grew up on that and if I grew up on that you know, in the 1980s. I mean, there's, we have generations in this country, and that's one of the things, the normalized treatment of women's bodies and women themselves as if they are there to be useful to men, in white men, in whatever capacity, 
those men might want to use them. And it is sexual. It is also fundamentally about like domestic labor. Some of the things that that 70s movement questioned, you know, that that women do the labor of raising children and cleaning house in part to enable men's power in the public sphere, their participation in the economy, that that women are fundamentally ancillary to men. And so if they get slightly roughed up, we can imaginatively view the drunken exploits of a teenage privileged white man as fundamentally comprehensible, recognizable, in part, again, because that version of humanity has been put on display for us in pop teenage movies from the 80s, in our literature. One of the things about that, though, is that I think it speaks to some of the the backlash argument, which is if it was also normalized, then maybe we can change it going forward. But it's not fair to judge men mm-hmm. on it going backwards. Right. So here's the story. I'm fast. I'm so glad you bring up that particular point. And this does go back to what happened in the 70s. Because here's this question, right? This is the question of this moment. And it, before Kavanaugh, before Me Too of 2017, going back to Access Hollywood, going back to Anita Hill, going back to Bill Clinton— There is a portion of this country that wants to change these rules. We think that these rules disempower women in a way that needs to be addressed. But anytime we change rules that have been long established, you can't just say, okay, we're changing the rules for everybody born now. But everybody else gets grandfathered in. When you're fundamentally changing social mores, when you want to say this behavior that has been okay but that has done untold damage must change. If we're going to change that behavior, you have to sort of change the rules in the middle of the game because we don't. it doesn't work generationally to say, okay, every boy born now, you're going to get a different culture. That's not possible. And so, yes, there are people who are caught. This is the story of Bill Clinton. You know how many presidents before Bill Clinton— engaged in sexual power abuses, a hell of a lot of them. He happened to be president at a moment when coming out of the second wave and some of the legal challenges that were presented around sexual harassment, our ideas about what was okay were changing. It's not that his behavior was different from that of many of his predecessors. It's that he engaged it in a moment at which our rules were changing and he got caught in that change. Now, obviously, it takes a long time for these changes to be enacted. We're doing that now. And that's how you get the sort of plaintive cries from John Hockenberry and John Gomeshi. But uh, this what of romance? Because they grew up in a culture in which they were told that the rules of romance might also entail a whole lot of behaviors, which in fact are not okay. And they can confuse those things because they grew up in a culture that sent them all kinds of messages about what hetero coupling might entail, how men were supposed to present themselves powerfully, what kinds of things women were really permitted to legitimately object to, what their nose meant. I mean, all of these attitudes, um, the attitudes about how women's bodies might be treated. And if we are going to change those rules, then there are going to be men who started a game with one set of rules that they thought they understood. I think it's a little bit too, like Harvey Weinstein was like, I was raised, you know what? Harvey Weinstein was never raised in a world in which anybody told him it was okay to violently rape people, right? So there's a little bit of overuse of the like, I was born in a different era. 
But to the extent that we want to alter the assumptions and expectations of how men and women are supposed to treat each other in terms of treating each other as equals and with respect and respecting each other's autonomy and sexual desires as being fundamentally comparable and equal, that means that if we're going to change the rules in the middle of the game, there are going to be people who feel like they somehow were cheated, that it's not fair. They were just behaving according to the ways that they had been raised and that they'd been told were okay by pop movies of the 1980s. (laughs) And now they're being held to account for it. That is similar to what happened during the 1970s when there were these suddenly women and men who'd entered marriages in, you know, 1960 with both of them equally enthusiastic about this is what marriage means and I'm going to stay home with the kids and you're going to go out and earn the money. And then there was a massive social uprising that said, actually, there are other things that we want to fight for women to be able to do with their lives, whether it's to create some economic stability for themselves, to live outside of marriage, to have a more liberated sex life, to have a professional life that might be fulfilling for them, again, intellectually or economically or both, that we want to open up educational opportunities for them. And then in the middle of these marriages, women were saying, wait a minute, my ideas about what's possible in my life are changing, and this marriage no longer conforms to my ideas of what I want for the rest of my life. And there were many men who realistically said, but we went into this together. We were, we both wanted this. And now you're telling me you want something completely different. Those men were not wrong. That's part of what happens when we have a social upheaval. That is what's potentially revolutionary and disruptive about all of these movements that are spurred by anger at inequity and anger at injustice. They create disruption and discomfort. And they're clearly discomforting Lindsey Graham, among others, and Brett Kavanaugh. And, you know, there is some degree to which I understand why. That's what it means to change fundamentally abusive power structures. I think that is a good place to end. So let me, before we go, you have such great intellectual history in this book. What are a couple books that either put this moment into context or maybe have been written off for being angry or were written outside of the mainstream that you think people should take another look at? Well, again, I mentioned this during the interview, but I can't say strongly enough that it's really worth going back and revisiting Andrea Dworkin's intercourse um, and her other writing, too. Which is Um, weirdly uh, also recommended in the Harper's essay. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I know. Yeah. I just think that Dworkin has a lot to say to this moment. There's also, I want to mention in the book something about Dworkin that I just, I wanted to say when we were talking about her earlier and I forgot, one of the most moving things I found, a colleague and a friend of mine, Erin Carmone, who herself has done some of the reporting on Me Too. She reported the Washington Post stories about Charlie Rose. She pointed me to an interview she did when she was a freshman at Harvard University a few years before Andrea Dworkin died. And she asked Andrea Dworkin, she was writing for the Harvard Crimson, and she asked Andrea Dworkin, who'd come to to speak at her college, what do you do about people who aren't, who don't think anything is wrong? People who aren't angry, basically. And what Andrea Dworkin said to her is, that's where the power of personal narrative comes in. One woman will say, will tell her personal story. And then others will say, yes, that happened to me too. So she basically, I mean, this was a prognostication of what we are now experiencing, you know, in the wake of Access Hollywood during Me Too, now around Brett Kavanaugh and the number of women who are coming forward and describing the ways that they were assaulted when they were young that have resonated with Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's experience. So I just wanted to mention that because it was so powerful to me to go back and see this 
response to a college journalist in which she basically described the circumstances of social upheaval and social and political movements powered by women willing to tell their stories. Another crucial text that people should read is actually Audre Lorde's The Uses of Anger. It was actually a paper that she gave in the early 1980s, and it is about women's anger at each other over racial inequity within a women's movement. And her approach, a lot of what I write about in the book, is anger between women around, for example, the Women's March about, you know, the appropriation, the white women's appropriation of the name of a protest, the Million Women's March that had been led by black women, which ties into a long history of white appropriation of black activism and black thinking, the marginalization of of women of color within a women's movement, the anger from women of color that it's been white women who vote for conservative white patriarchal politics again and again, not just in 2016 when 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump, but, you know, 56% of white women voted for Mitt Romney over Barack Obama. And the anger between women is often used to discredit the women's movement as a whole by painting it as uniquely cacophonous and uniquely riven by dissent. Of course, it's not. Any mass social movement is also riven by and divided over inequities, racism, sexism, homophobia, classism. But Audre Lorde talks about the anger between women and the value of expressing it and the value of expressing it with an eye toward moving forward. And I think that's one of the crucial things that in this period where we are in a moment of potential coalition between women who also have all kinds of reasons to be angry at each other over inequity, I think that we need to really consider, you know, what Audre Lorde calls the uses of anger between women. So that's another book that I would recommend. And then... There's a third book that I read after I was done writing mine, and everybody was saying when I was I was writing my book very quickly over the course of four months, and everyone was like, have you read The Power? Have you read The Power? It's a novel that came out last year by Naomi Alderman, and it is sort of a sci-fi or fantasy novel about women actually gaining a physical power over men. And I finally, I finished my book, I handed it in, it was the summer, and I was like, oh, I'm going to read a novel. And I picked up The Power, and it was like seeing the book that I'd just written about the political consequences of women's anger and the potentially revolutionary power of women's anger brought to vivid fictional life. It was, it's chilling, it is fascinating, but more than that, it's mind-bending because Fictionally, in talking about what would happen if women gained power over men, what Alderman has done, it will blow your mind. I cannot recommend reading it enough simply for the exercise of like, oh, my God, of course, that is born of the fact that men have this physical power that women lack. Um, It's just it was sort of mind exploding. And so that's the third book I would recommend. Rebecca Traister, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ezra. Thank you to Rebecca Traister for being here. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner. This Clown Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back next week. Support for this show comes from Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Whether you're seeking a location for your podcast, teaching language courses, or selling handcrafted ceramics, Squarespace makes it easy to create a polished, professional place that connects people with whatever it is you're excited about. Visit squarespace.com Vox for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code Vox to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. 